Despite a series of recommendations, reports and policy implementations, the number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in New South Wales continues to rise. Currently, Aboriginal children make up over 40% of those in the system. Yet despite this obvious over-representation, the peak body for Aboriginal child protection in New South Wales, ABSEC, is set to lose half of its annual funding next financial year. Paul Gray is an Associate Professor at the Jumbana Institute, overseeing child protection research and policy. Before that, he served as Executive Leader of Strategy, Policy and Engagement at ABSEC for a number of years. Paul, welcome to Speaking Out. Hi, Larissa. Thanks for having me. And I understand that you're here in your capacity as the Associate Professor at Jumbana, not speaking on behalf of ABSEC. But I wondered if before we could get into the issues around that funding decision, if you could tell us where you grew up and what your influences are. Sure. So I'm a Wiradjuri man. Uh, My family and community uh, is in central New South Wales in the Dubbo area, Peak Hill area. But I grew up in southwestern Sydney on Tharawal country, where my family moved following World War II, actually. So we've been there for a little while. I suppose my, my greatest influences growing up were my family I mean, and local community, where my family was quite active in the local community. And they really provided me and my brothers a, a strong foundation to think about the contribution we, we can make to our communities, the importance of education, My generation, we were the first in our families to go to university, which I know is an experience for many Aboriginal families. And so that was something that was really strongly instilled in us from our families, uh, that importance of getting a, a, a good education and then using that to improve the circumstances for our communities. So what drew you into work in the area of child protection? When I started at university, like a lot of people starting uni, I wasn't really sure where I wanted to go, but I had a real interest in trying to understand people. And so I found myself studying psychology. Around the same time that being the youngest and we moved out to go to university, my parents started caring for young people through the child protection system. And that was a real eye-opener for me, you know, being very close to my family and seeing the experiences that those young people were going through at that time really opened my eyes to some of the issues in the system. And then an opportunity came up for me to join the Department of Community Services on a cadetship. So I grabbed that with both hands and I've been in child protection ever since. For those who aren't aware, what's the role of ABSEC and other bodies like that when it comes to Aboriginal child protection? So peak bodies are really important and representative peak bodies like ABSEC provide a a really important voice at the systems level when it comes to how the statutory child protection system affects Aboriginal families and communities. So they're able to support and represent the voices of local Aboriginal organisations, local Aboriginal communities in how the current systems are affecting Aboriginal children. They also do a lot of important work. I mean, New South Wales is a very big state and we know that the distribution of services is not equal. So there are huge gaps in the service system, particularly in regional and remote areas. And part of ABSEC's important work is helping communities to build capacity in those areas and develop the sorts of early intervention services and other services that are needed so that Aboriginal children and young people and their families that need support are able to access it in their local community and from local community providers. 
You've labelled the decision to cut funding to ABSEC as a worrying sign for Aboriginal children and families in New South Wales. What concerns you most? I think my biggest concern in terms of this is what it indicates in terms of the direction of the sector. So we've had a few experiences and examples lately where we've seen that the voices of Aboriginal people are not being considered or taken into account when it comes to significant reforms or changes. And I think the concern here is that reductions to uh, the effective funding of a peak body like ABSEC is just further continuing that, uh, that diminishing of the important voice of Aboriginal people in a system that disproportionately affects us and our children. So I think sort of that's the main concern for me. Over the last two or three years, we've seen legislative changes that went through with very limited engagement with Aboriginal people. We've seen the Family as Culture Review, probably the most significant recent review of Aboriginal children in, in the out-of-home care system for a generation. That review came out in November 2019, and there's been really limited engagement with Aboriginal voices, Aboriginal communities, and their representative bodies about what we do as a system in responding to those recommendations. So I'm just concerned that this is an indicator that what we're going to see is a, a diminishing the voice of Aboriginal people when it's as important as ever. The number of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care in New South Wales sits at around 40%. From your perspective, what are the contributing factors behind this overrepresentation? Well, this is one of the things that the Families Culture Report tackled specifically. And what they pointed to, what Professor Megan Davis pointed to in that report, is just the lack of early intervention supports, the lack of culturally based services that are effective in meeting the needs of Aboriginal families and communities, a particular lack of effective responses for prenatal reports, where instead of offering planned out and considered responses, we tend to see Aboriginal children being removed from birthing suites and hospitals. So there's the front end, how do we do early intervention better and work better with families to prevent children coming into care? So there's the lack of early intervention supports that are really important. And just all of the different elements that sit under the reasons that families come in contact with the child protection system. We know that involvement in the child protection system is disproportionately from lower socioeconomic families. They're families that are already vulnerable. They're families that are struggling with mental health, with addiction, with all of the kind of consequences of intergenerational trauma. And rather than offering the supports that are needed to address those things, we seem to have this response of going in and taking children away. And all that does is perpetuates this kind of cycle of removal and, and of trauma rather than trying to really stop it and find a different way that's going to be more sustainable in the long term. With your considerable experience in this space, in your view, what would be the most effective strategies to address the continuing trend of increased removal of Aboriginal children and start reversing that? So I think investment in early intervention is really important. But it's really important, too, that we don't just invest in any family support. We know that a key cornerstone of effective policy for Aboriginal communities, and particularly in the child and family space, is this idea of self-determination, of Aboriginal peoples working out what's going to work best for them. And we know that works best because they know their local circumstances, they know their communities, and they know they're able to shape their own aspirations and priorities 
if they're empowered to design these programs themselves. So I think first and foremost is investing in local communities to develop their own responses, develop their own solutions, and to build around that a really rigorous data system that allows communities to understand what are the impacts that their interventions are having so that they're able to make better decisions year on year about how things are going and what else they need to do to make those things better. You know, what's really concerning at the moment is something like 15% of the child protection investment in New South Wales is directed to family supports, according to the report on government services, which means that 85% of that funding is invested elsewhere. I'd really like to see that shift so that we're investing far more in the sorts of things that will prevent kids being harmed first and foremost, but also in responding more effectively and, and helping families meet the needs of their children and young people so that they don't have to fall into these systems. From your perspective, having watched this space, what are the barriers that prevent governments from going down this track and and implementing some of these recommendations that are coming from the sector, from reports, and seem to be based in common sense? Well, I think a big part of it is kind of the legacy issue, if you know what I mean. We have thousands of Aboriginal children, thousands of children generally, in the out-of-home care system, and I don't think anyone is suggesting that we reduce the support to them. So what this will need is a a surge in funding in order to provide the level of intervention that's needed to bring down that initial entries into care so that we can start reinvesting money in the back end. So we know that there's that kind of how do we balance these things issue. And, you know, there has been a lot of conversation in the New South Wales jurisdiction about how we do that. I think the other challenge for Aboriginal communities particularly is, and this was picked up in the Families Cultural Report, is that there's still a a very deep sense of historic continuity between past policies and kind of those protectionist era policies and what we see in current practice. And in a way, we see that in the the responses to the legislative changes and now to the family as culture review, where governments see this as a problem that governments have to solve, rather than recognising that Aboriginal communities are the ones who have the solutions to these issues and working in genuine partnership with communities to solve them. So I think that kind of conceptual piece of recognising that Aboriginal communities are best placed to solve these problems remains a real sticking point in moving towards the sorts of solutions that we need to see. I wanted to just pick up on something that's obviously a recurring theme in terms of solutions in what you're saying, and that is this concept of self-determination. I was wondering if you could maybe articulate that in terms of how you see that as a concept that should be guiding this space and why that's so important. Sure. And self-determination was one of the key recommendations that was made in bringing them home more than 20 years ago. So it's a bit disappointing, I suppose, to still be talking about what it could mean in the child protection space. But in bringing them home, it described it as Aboriginal decision-making, so community decision-making being carried through to implementation. It's really that simple. And they even said that government should sort of limit their role to providing the resources and the other supports that communities need to design and administer their own responses to these things. And so I think that's a really simple way of thinking about it and understanding that it's about communities having a real voice in the systems and the policies that affect them, 
and being able to meaningfully shape those on the ground so that they meet local needs and are best suited to meeting the needs of their families. The statistics in this space are overwhelming and obviously behind that 40% of Aboriginal children in out-of-home care are the stories of children and families. So it's actually a, a very difficult space to be working in. But I was wondering if you could talk about where you get your optimism from, because you're clearly working on the belief that you can change this. And I was wondering what it is that gives you hope that things will be different in the future. That's a really good question, particularly as I suppose, as we look backwards as well, we don't see a lot of change. And that really meaningful systemic change, we see a lot of shuffling of policies. We see a lot of shifts in rhetoric. But at the bottom line, the most basic level, we haven't really seen huge changes. And I suppose the optimism is can, can be really challenging at times. But I think, too, you know, this is part of the ongoing struggle, I guess, for our families and our communities. So I don't know that it's a, a sense of optimism per se, but just an obligation that I feel that I have in my community because this is the area that I work And it's that obligation that we're not a community that's going to give up on our children and young people. We never have and we never will. I don't know if it's so much a sense of optimism for change, but just that we will always be here pushing for the change that we need to see and trying to stand up for our children and young people because that's what we have to do. One of the things I'm always interested in when I have people on the show, Indigenous experts who are working at the front line on issues as difficult as this, is how they keep their resilience, how they keep working day after day in an area that it's incredibly emotionally draining. Now, I was wondering if you could share with us how you keep your resilience when you do such hard work at the coalface. For me, it goes back to what I was saying at the start. It's about family. I'm very close to my family and they play a big role in keeping me on track and promoting my well-being when things are, are not going so well in the space or, or when I'm working with a particularly difficult or, or heartbreaking case. And unfortunately, there's too many of those. You know, it's all those things that our communities talk about. It's feeling safe to talk about these things with trusted people in our lives so that we're not just holding them all in. I think too, on the weekend, uh, went out to my family's place and went down the back and just got out into the bush and we actually started cutting some coolamons and things like that. So just going back to the simple things and the things that matter. And it really reminds us why we're here and why we do what we do. I remember working with a practitioner once and they, they saw the idea of vicarious trauma being more about the frustration of a system that doesn't seem to care rather than being an effect of the stories that we come across. And I think that's really true. It's not so much the stories that affect me, it's that when those problems are raised, how difficult it is to get them resolved. That's the part that I think really wears Aboriginal advocates down because, you know, we hear a lot of talk about the importance of culture, the importance of keeping families connected, the importance of removals only as a last resort. And yet, as anyone who's looked at the Family as Culture Review will know, that's just not what we see in practice and And it's the unwillingness to change that that I think is the most challenging. And so having other like-minded people who support that advocacy is really important to the resilience and to feeling like we can keep getting up and doing this each day. Well, Paul, thank you so much for dropping by speaking out this evening and sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Larissa. Um, And I hope everyone has a good evening. 
Paul Gray is an Associate Professor at the Jambana Institute where he oversees the research and policy on First Nations child protection.